Let's jump into um, to, to Nehemiah 1 here in just a, a moment. But some of you will know, some of you won't, that I began building things. I started learning more about building, um, which is pretty cool. My, my, my dad um, actually built his first house when he was 18 years old, like had property and built his first house, like pretty much by himself with the help of some friends and family, which is crazy. Like who even owns property at 18, let alone builds their own house? But that was my dad. I and mean, he was never like full-time in construction, but he just had this kind of knack for it. My grandfather's been in construction most of his life. My uncle is, and I didn't know squat. I mean, I didn't know anything, never picked anything up, but I guess I always had this gene, this like craftsman gene. So I started learning more about it in the past few years, and we've started building lots of things. And um, how many of you guys in the house would confess you have no crafty bone in your body? Anybody confess that? Yes, okay, there's a couple that are willing to confess it, no crafty bone in our body. And it's, but the truth of the matter is that we're all building something, all of us. We're all building something, and you may not be building tables or, um, you know, building some cool piece of art, but we're all building something. We're building families. We're building careers. We're building lives for ourselves. We're um, building a great following for your 80s cover band. You're building, like, I, I wish some of you had, like, an 80s cover band. I, I love 80s music. Um, you're building something. Like, we're all building something, and the question I think that we kind of come to today is, is what we're investing our, our lives in, is it worth building? Is it worth building? And, and if it's not, and maybe it is, what would God call us to invest ourselves in and, and build up? And so I really want to talk about having a God-sized vision for our life and what God can do through that. We're going to end up talking a little bit about prayer, what kind of prayer life that should, should look like as well. I mean, we as a church have been building and investing in some things like this, uh, a couple of... Uh, I guess it was last week or the week before, uh, we were investing over in our neighborhood school at Mandarin High and investing into the lives of the teachers there and encouraging them and blessing them with breakfast and had, had Chick-fil-A partner with us on that, but investing there, investing in uh, globally in uh, the orphanage in Kenya and like taking care of, they all continue to do the ministry that we're doing there. In fact, I'll let you know, Pastor Ismail, some of you guys will remember him from a year ago when he was here. He'll be preaching in about a month and a half. He'll be here from Kenya and be preaching with us, so we're looking forward to having him. But we've been investing in a lot of things as a church and building up what God's called us to build up, and some of it may not be building in our lives. Some of it may be rebuilding, like like we had a, a great career. We were kind of established financially, and then the economic downturn happened, and then, you know, the story's pretty clear after that, or maybe we were building a family and everything was going well, and then now we're rebuilding kind of our family after divorce, or whatever it might be in our lives Whatever is going on in your life, it may be building, it may be rebuilding, and that's really the situation that we're going to find um, in, in Nehemiah chapter 1 is a rebuilding kind of project. And so I want to begin to dig into this. Let's go to Nehemiah chapter 1, and I'm going to kind of give you some context and help us understand kind of some, some backstory and background, because it does, when you read the Old Testament, it can be a little bit confusing, and, and more than anything, once you begin to get the backstory, everything kind of becomes more vibrant and like alive, and so that's what we're going to dig into. So Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, that's always a fun name, Hakaliah, uh, in the month, um, it, it's even more fun when you kind of understand Hebrew and like how, like everything has like a German, like, uh, in, the, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Susa is the, the Persian capital at the time, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Let's hold right there. That survived the exile. So as readers, like, we just kind of pause. I'm like, okay, what? What just happened? We're just starting the book. Like, we're just starting it. 
who, what, what exile? Like, who survived? Like, what's a remnant? And so, beginning to dig into this, let me go ahead and give you a little bit of background on who um, Nehemiah is first. The very end of chapter one will tell us that Nehemiah was a cupbearer. No one in this room has ever held this occupation of being a cupbearer, but Nehemiah was a cupbearer. So basically, he was a taste tester, right? Anybody ever wish like you could be like a cereal taste tester or like a, you know, I always thought that would be a cool thing. Like, I'd love a taste testing job. I would just eat all day. Be fantastic. Um, that's kind of what he did, but he did it with a cup. Like he would bear the king's cup, and the cup was like, I'm thirsty. He'd first take a sip of it to make sure that it wasn't poison so that the king wouldn't die. I mean, he was like playing Russian roulette every day, like, I hope I don't die by drinking this, whatever it was, and, and he'd pass it to the king. So that was his job, kind of an exciting job, right? You never know if you're going to die today. Um, and so that was what he, he did, um, and he was a cupbearer, but he, he was Jewish. And so he's asking this question about the Jewish remnant because we're picking up on this kind of post-exile, post um, captivity um, for, for the Jews, something known as the Babylonian captivity, captivity or the Babylonian exile. Anybody ever heard of this? You might have heard of this. It happened in, in 600 BC um, where a guy named King Nebuchadnezzar came in and, and didn't take all the Jews, but he took everyone that was educated, took anyone that could build anything, took anybody that had any influence or any ability to, to do anything, uh, um, basically everybody except like peasants. Um, that were just slaves, and he took them and, and deported them basically from Jerusalem and scattered them over. Most of them were in captivity in uh, Babylon Babylon at the time. King, King Nebuchadnezzar had taken them there. And so the remnant, there were some that were left over, and some of you may be familiar with the book of Lamentations that's in the scriptures. It's basically a book about complaining. So if you feel like you just need somebody complaining with you, go to the book of Lamentations, and it's really depressing. Because what it is, it was written out of this time, those that were left over in Jerusalem that were complaining to the Lord. Like, that's what that book is. People that were left back, they just started writing their complaints about how rough things are. And so actually, when I was in Cambodia uh, j- last January, not this past January, January before they actually had something called the Khmer Rouge, and this is exactly what happened to them, is this leader came in, and he basically put them all in concentration camps and ran them out and killed everyone that was, that was educated, that had any skills, that had any influence at all, even people that wore glasses he killed. Like, I mean, it was just really, really intense, and so I walked through this former high school, that, and this was like this past century, and so, and I just saw, and we began to hear the story. So we went through this one building, their parliament building, that was actually the first building that all Cambodians had built since this time, because they had no skilled workers. All their engineers were, were taken off and murdered. So I saw like the hopelessness and the things that went into what this would be like, even here in uh, a more current period uh, of life. And so he's asking about this exile that's left over, and also about Jerusalem. So let's continue, and we'll begin to unpack this a little more, but that gives you a little bit of background. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. So just a a, a tiny bit more of exile, or uh, background here on, on this exile. It lasted for about 70 years, so from about 597 B.C., to whatever 70 years is from that, you're good math. Um, I can't remember. It was like 70 years from then is how long it lasted. And a guy named King Cyprus or Cyrus the Great actually released the Jews to go back and build their temple. He was known as the Great because he let the people go back. 
So they go back and they build their temple back up, which is a big deal. But their walls are still broken down. So the, the internal kind of center of life, which the temple was. Can you imagine moving, going back, to, back home or if, if we got deported from here, we came back and there was no Fathom Church. Like, what, what, what does the world come to? Like, or if there was no churches whatsoever, it's hard to feel like home, right? And so they, they built that. It was kind of the center of life and the center of kind of family and community and, and legal procedures. So they built that back, but the walls were still down. So when the walls aren't fortified, walls were very important at this time, and they weren't fortified, it really made everything susceptible. People couldn't sleep at night. They were afraid. We weren't, like, fully established until then. And so what's the shape of those walls? The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. So I think the first question we have to ask ourselves is, is begin to ask, okay, how does that apply to my life? Like, and I think when we begin to look at the temple being restored, being put back together, but the walls aren't yet. So what are the condition of your walls in your life? Like, what if we begin to establish what those walls are in our lives? Is it our relationship with God? Is it our relationship with others? Like, is there some walls broken down, some bridges that have been burnt, you know, with our family, with our marriage, with our kids? What are the relationship? what's the condition of those walls? Have there been some things that have burned down and we're trying to rebuild it back up. What about our career? Like condition of our walls, our business, job, different things. I mean, all these different things. Our, our local church. I mean, the world. The condition. What's the condition of the walls in our world? I mean, it seems like we feel susceptible, don't we? I mean, there's so many things, and that feels like, man, that's a t- depressing way to get us started this morning. But the good news is that God's in the business of making all things new. If we look at Revelation 21:5, if we look at that. God's in the business of making all things new, and he's drawing us back to uh, his presence and drawing us back um, to, to building things new. And, and so I, I think we have to begin to open ourselves up and first assess, like, what does God want to restore in my life? What does God want to make new in my life? What does he want to make new in the life of our church? What are the condition of those walls? And the truth of the matter is that sometimes that's overwhelming. Not only is it depressing, but it's overwhelming to think about rebuilding that I, when we were, we were college pastors before we lived here in, in Florida, back in Florida, we grew up here, but we were college pastors in Georgia, and we had built this building because our ministry had grown, they had built this building that was like about the size of this whole building, and I remember we had got the plumbing done, the foundation was done, and then things got exciting once the walls started coming up, right? The walls are all put up, and they begin to brace it in. The trusses were supposed to be there the next day, and that's going to really lock everything down. Well, like one or two days passed before the trusses. They got delayed a day or so, and, and we came in. I think it was a Saturday or something. Maybe it was a Friday to a Monday, and then that Saturday, everything got blown over. Literally everything. That, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of time. All the walls put up, and a wind came through and knocked it all down. And, and we basically had a choice at that point. Like, what are we going to do here? Like, everything, we can get depressed and cry about it. Like, that's one option. Or we can rebuild. We can rebuild. And God's in the business of rebuilding. God's in the business of making all things new. So even if we feel that depression or, or the things that are, are, are kind of broken down that feels kind of, man, that's a bummer have to rebuild it. God's in the business of doing that, and he loves to do that. And, and sometimes we get a little overwhelmed by it and think, can God handle this, or can God do this? And the truth of the matter is, is that if we think our problems are too big for God, then we probably need to reassess how big we think God is. If we think our problems, you know, big or small in our life, 
You know, I had a mentor who used to always say, you know the difference between major surgery and minor surgery? Well, mine's major and yours is minor, right? You know, so that's, that's, that's the difference between that. And so even if it seems too big to us, like we have to raise the view of God because nothing's impossible for, for God. And, and so I think many times we just kind of feel like, hey, if God's going to do it, he's going to do it right now, right? And we always want those miracles to happen right now. But sometimes it happens over the long haul. One of my favorite quotes I heard from uh, Craig Rochelle, he said that don't overestimate what God wants to do with you in the short term, but don't underestimate what God wants to do in your life in the long term. Don't overestimate the short term that those walls are going to go up overnight, but don't underestimate what God wants to do with you in the long term. And so we just kind of begin to walk in this faithfulness of who God's called us to be and walk that out. So things are burnt down. Understanding that condition of our walls is kind of the first step. So let's begin to move away from kind of the condition of the walls and, and continue on here. Let's look at um, verse, what is it, verse five, 4? Yeah, we're at 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. So now we're talking about Nehemiah's response to this. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah's response about the walls, we're just talking about walls, right? But we're also talking about people here, and they're in disgrace. Sat down, and what was his response? So I think kind of the big question to us, and what I would say to us this morning, is that life's more about how we respond. It's not just about what happens to us, but it's about how we respond. You know, I've always wondered, it's always been interesting to me, you have two people that go through the exact same thing, and they respond really differently, right? Two people lose their job in the same company, and one of them, you know, immediately starts a new business, and maybe they just have the entrepreneurial itch or not. But they start a billion-dollar company out of it, right? So they respond in this way. Another person sits on unemployment until unemployment runs out and then just give up on life, right? I mean, same thing happened to them, two different responses. And, and so much of, of life is there are things that we can't control. Many times we just put this under this umbrella of life happens, right? Life happens, Life's not all about just what happens to you, but it's how you respond to it. And, and I think how we respond tells God a lot about what's happened in our heart. How we respond. So, I mean, look at Nehemiah's life, and he responded, what, with mourning and with prayer and with fasting? Like, he responded in like a, a really deep, no, go back, go back to that, uh, where you were at just before about how we respond. But it, it tells God something about what's in our heart. Like, if I respond, oh, you know, and just kind of beating up on myself, and like, oh, I'll never make it out of this, we're basically saying to God, I don't think you're capable of restoring this. If we kind of, you know, kind of sit down in kind of the molly grubs like, or, or, or whatever, if we keep beating ourselves up over mistakes that we made 10 years ago or a year ago, we're, we're saying something to God about what we understand about the gospel. And mostly that we don't understand the gospel. And how we respond also says the posture of our heart. I heard this quote years ago that you should be very careful at the things you laugh at and the things you cry at because they tell God everything that's in your heart. And so many times like we, we, we will laugh at infidelity or laugh at uh, adultery or fornication. We'll laugh at that as opposed to weeping about it. Sometimes we'll, we'll make fun of, of those that are less fortunate or those that are homeless. There'll be laughter involved and not weeping. You see, you see the thing, when we take on God's heart, we begin to, to, to laugh and cry at the things that he laughs and cries at. So we should guard our heart in this way, and how we respond to these things 
says a lot about what's in our heart. So if we've been responding with just depression, let's, let's assess how we view God. Let's assess the gospel. If we've been beating ourselves up for years and bearing this, let's assess what that says about our understanding of the gospel and go back to that place. If we respond with anger, let's assess the posture of our heart. Nehemiah's response about other people, a place he doesn't even live, was a God-sized vision in the posture of his heart. I, I believe it's, it's told here that he responds with mourning and fasting and, and praying. And we're about to get into part of that prayer here. And I hope that can kind of bring life to the things that maybe we're going through, maybe the condition of some of our walls. If we can, I, I just love Nehemiah's prayer life. I, I find it so inspirational. You'll hear me through this whole series talking a lot about prayer. He was a man of prayer. Sometimes we, you know, we just end up praying like when we need something, right? Like we run to Walmart when we need something, you know? Um, and, and our prayer life is, is not truly, I feel like what Nehemiah's is, um, which is this response to brokenness and, and, and hurt here. So let's go to uh, verse uh, 5 now. Then I said, so Nehemiah prays to God after just hearing this news about the condition of the walls. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So stay right there for just a second. Lord, the God of heaven. If you know anything uh, about Jesus' um, prayer that he teaches the disciples, what's known as the Lord's Prayer, if you know that, it starts out with our Father in heaven. Holy is your name. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. We see like a very similar beginning in our prayers with a recognition of who God is. Most of the time our prayer life doesn't start like that. It starts with complaining, right? We just go straight to lamentations and like this is the conditions of the walls and we're just bummed about it. And we don't start like Nehemiah's prayer, which is a recognition of the greatness and the faithfulness of God. It's a recognition of the great, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love. A covenant is a two-way deal. And, and if you look at God's relationship with mankind, it's marked by covenants. It's marked by covenants from the beginning into the New Testament. In fact, many theologians don't even refer to the Old Testament and New Testament as the Old Testament and the New Testament. They refer to it as the Old Covenant and the New Covenant because we live under that New Covenant. And so it helps us kind of begin that framework for covenant. And there's a two-way thing. And what we have to remember about the character of God is that he doesn't break his covenants of love. He doesn't break them. We do. We have. That's what happened with Adam and Eve. They broke that first covenant. Recognition of the greatness and faithfulness of God. See, most of the time in, when the walls are as they are in our life, the condition, whether it's our job or whether it's our family or just the way things are in our church or our world, we go straight to complaining and we don't start with this declaration, with this recognition of the great and awesome and faithful God that we serve. But it, it begins to shape our perspective in everything. But when our focus becomes about our, the circumstances of man and not the character of God, then we'll miss the truth and we'll lose faith. When our focus becomes about the circumstances of man, our problems, and not about the greatness of God and the character and the faithfulness of God, when that's the only thing that's present, we'll, we'll miss the truth that God 
is in the business of making all things new. We'll miss the truth that God's not finished with us yet. We'll miss the opportunity to respond with brokenness. We'll, we'll miss kind of the essence of life and truth. And, and we begin to lose faith because we're just so focused. We're so caught up in our circumstances and not who, who God is. So they're going to end up rebuilding the walls. Spoiler alert. Right? What if Nehemiah would have responded differently? What if he would have responded differently and just complained and just said, well, I guess somebody else will do it, right? I mean, but that's not what he does. He feels this burden, this God-sized vision that God is going to send him a lowly cupbearer that his taste tester, I mean, he's going to lead the charge. What does Nehemiah as a cupbearer know about putting walls back together, about even leading people? All he does is take a cup. But God is doing something in his life and in his heart. His heart is ready to respond. And and it comes out in his prayer with the greatness and faithfulness of God. I think the second thing that happens beginning in in verse 6 here is is really important when it comes to our prayer life. And I think it's something we often miss in our prayer. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. Is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Look what he does here. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. I always think it's interesting. He's confessing sins of other people, right? Including myself and my father's family have committed against you. Read verse 7. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands. We broke the covenant, the decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. I think kind of the second thing that we miss, and this is a huge step in our prayer life, is we may recognize who God is. God, I love you, and I'm sorry. I pray that you'd forgive me, right? Like sometimes if it's our prayer, we just go, we go from like A to C, and we miss this big thing that happens in there of confession and what real repentance is. I talked about repentance for just a second. And if you're following along on the U version, on the app. I have all kinds of scriptures just on repentance, and I think it's so vibrant because we often miss B. We miss step B. We go from A to C. God, you're awesome. Forgive me. Forgive me. But the scriptures are clear about what real repentance is. Like, true repentance is the only repentance. True repentance is the only repentance. It's not just kind of saying it with our lips. It's not just kind of um, saying, hey, hey, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? But there's a true inward um, reckoning of wrong, what Second Corinthians chapter, I believe it's 5 and 7, actually says, it, it's a, there's a godly sorrow that produces that re- repentance. Uh, two, is it two? Uh, true repentance is, is the only repentance. And so sometimes we just jump straight from A to God, forgive me for this, right? Anybody ever do that? Find yourself, and it, like, particularly sins that we fight, chains that we fight after a while, and it kind of becomes the same old sorry, like, oh God, sorry, I did that again, sorry, forgive me, all right, good. And we just kind of run away from that, and we miss this big place of repentance, that life change happens in that place. We're always skipping this place um, of repentance, and that's really where there's a turning away, and, and the truth of the matter is that if we feel like we're too righteous to kind of repent, if we feel like we're, we're, we're too much um, they're too good for that. We're missing what Jesus came for in Luke 5. I've not come to call the righteous, but call sinners to repentance. I love what Romans 2 says. And it, it says, isn't it the kindness of God that leads us to repentance? Isn't it the kindness of God, not that we should take advantage of it, but we should, 
run back to God and not, not um, take it lightly, but it should lead us back um, to repentance. And so we can't miss this giant step. And repentance is this, if I can just kind of give you a simple statement. Repentance is falling at the feet of Jesus and not, and not just confessing, but saying, God, change me. Change me. Don't, don't just, I just don't want to jump to this apology and we kind of run through this kind of religious cycle we do where we go in and say these Hail Marys and, and kind of walk away. But I want something real to happen in my heart, God. Bring me to the feet of Jesus and change me from the inside out. That's what real repentance is. It's, it's not just in, in saying, hey, I'm sorry, forgive me. No, it's saying, God, I, you're awesome and, and I don't deserve salvation. Um, but you, you bring it through Jesus. And I, I want to walk in this life that you've called me to. But I need you to change me. And so many times we skip, and, and that's why we run these cycles, these patterns of sin for years on end. But the scriptures say that no one makes a pattern of sin as a child of God, as a friend of God. So we, we've got to, to let God break those things and set in that repentance. And that's what Nehemiah does. He's confessing for himself. He's confessing that, God, we've disobeyed. And it's not okay. It's not okay. Bring us back to repentance. That's why Jesus came. Let's continue looking at the, the scripture where we find a really full kind of conclusion to this first chapter. Remember the instruction. I want you to notice all the R words. This sounds like a preacher thing to say. Notice all the, the R words that are present here. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses. And just this is another side note. I always think it's interesting when they have to remind God about stuff. God, remember this? I feel like we don't have to remember, but sometimes we do. Like, God, you told me you were going to do that. You know, Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you were unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the nations. They've been unfaithful, and what's happened? They, they've scattered among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even your exiled people uh, are at the, uh, even if your peop- exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I'll gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name, back to Jerusalem. Remember, return, continue on. They are your servants and your people who you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. And finally, in verse 11, let your, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of the man of this man. He's about to unleash a God-sized prayer, and next week we're going to talk about praying big. Stop praying these tiny little prayers, because Nehemiah is about to pray a big prayer. That's a big prayer, more than what we can ever realize, and we're going to dig into that more next week. But look at all these R words. I know that sounds weird to, to, to do, but they seem to pull out, remember, return and obey my commands. Those that have been redeemed, return. And I think that's what God wants to, to get into our, our spirit today is that to delight in revering his name, that the redeemed will revere and return to God. If we've been redeemed, we'll return. If we've been redeemed, we'll revere, and not just the idea of revere. Anybody ever use that word? Probably not. Um, the idea of revere is like a, a deep, deep respect that produces awe, right? It's a little bit deeper than Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt, right? It's a little bit deeper than that. It's it's a deep, deep respect that produces awe. And I delight in being in awe of the God of heaven. Like, 
That's deep stuff. And, and I think in our lives right now, like whatever you're going through, whatever the condition are, the walls in your life, if we can come back to these things right here of delighting and revering his name and remember that we've been redeemed, that obedience will come naturally because we just stay in awe of God, like God, bring me back. And, and when we slip and when we fall, we come to this place and we don't just jump from zero to forgiveness, but we say, God, change me from the inside out. Change me from the inside out, God, that, that, I, might be, um, that I might help build these walls that you've called me to. I might be a part of what you're doing in the world. And if you've been redeemed here today, and maybe you've lost that awe, you've lost that revering, or maybe you've never had that and it's just been a religious thing, know that God's redeemed you into relationship, not into religion right? Some of us, we bring this baggage that we're fighting with the church or whatever religious deal we've got going. We bring that and we feel like there's this great giant space between us and God. And God's, I think, wanting to whisper in our ear that I'm not as far as you think I am. Just repent because I've come for you. I think about the moments that I've fallen flat on my face, so short of who God's called me to be. And I think in those moments that I very seldom have I, has it produced awe. There's been some awe. There's been moments where, um, where I was in just amazement of God and his mercy, but most of the time I'm just, I'm operating out of fear, right? I'm running back in a fear, oh, if I don't do this, then God's going to, Strike me dead, right? There's just this kind of overwhelming kind of psychological thing that we've created. And one of the, I feel like with the great shortcomings I've ever had in my life, I was talking with my wife about that. The most beautiful thing that ever happened to me was, was her response to me in that time to heal and bring the mercy and grace of God into that moment. And it that produced awe. And God can do that directly to us. He doesn't need anybody else. But sometimes he uses other people. And for Nehemiah, like, he was feeling something with what God was doing here. There was a genuine brokenness that produced in his response tears produced mourning and fasting and, and this beautiful prayer of just recognizing who God is. That you're awesome, God. We've messed up, but let me first get this out. Let me get this out there. You're awesome. Despite my failures, you're awesome and you're faithful. It's we who've broken the, the covenant. And God wants to bring us back if you're in this place and you've, you've walked away from the Lord, your heart has strayed from him. And you've jumped straight, God, forgive me, but there's never been true repentance. There's never been honest. God, change me from the inside out. God wants to do that in us today. And you may have just been trucking along and everything's going fine. The walls are in decent shape. And God just wants to produce in us this revering, this delighting, and just this awestruck respect of the God of heaven that maybe we don't have today. And I want to invite you to stand and just search your heart for a moment. And ask what God's doing in, in our lives.
God, I pray that your spirit would speak to us right now. We'll let this, the words of thousands of years ago of a simple taste tester, the life that he lived, God, I pray that it would inspire us. God, I pray that your presence would bring us to understanding the fullness of the gospel and what Jesus did for us. God, I pray that in this place, if we are, we're running, we would be reminded that he's redeemed us. And we just need to return. Return to who he's called us to be. Repent and walk in the new life that he's called us to. God, I pray that this day, that this moment is preparation for what you're building. Whether you build it right in this moment, God, or you build it over the next six months or two months or two years, God, we trust you. We trust that you are great and you are faithful, God, and we are going to worry about what you've called us to worry about, and that's walking in relationship with you, delighting in revering your name, walking in the faithfulness of obedience that you've called us to. God, gather the scattered Gather the, the, the brokenhearted. God, gra- gather together. Bring back together as we walk in covenant with you. The covenant of Jesus. God, we thank you for this time. We prepare our hearts for what you want to do in this time.